What is up, folks? It's The Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Kana. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here. But the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smart more inspired or more connected than when you pressed play. Whereas the long ad read, you will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on Patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single Thursday, and I'm eternally grateful for their support. But more on that after the show. How's it going? What's up, folks? Welcome back to the Emulsion Podcast. This is episode 108. This is 108, and every time I type 108 to do the thumbnail for things like this, or I type something on my website, I think of the restaurant in Copenhagen. Just is how it goes. We have Instagram Live here. I'm going to answer some questions towards the end if people decide to chime in on their opinions. Let's start off with these beverages, shall we? This is the tail end of a classic JK cold brew that I make at my house probably twice a week here. Um, put a touch of milk in it today. been really enjoying like the tiny tiniest bit of half and half especially if it's cold coffee. I don't know. It just seems like a little... I like black coffee when it's hot as an Americano or like a drip coffee, but that's just kind of where my uh, where my opinion goes right now. And then the other one that's kind of a new... It, it's new to the scene on the Emulsion podcast. It's this guy, the uh, Whole Foods branded LaCroix. I do a lot of ordering through Prime now, which is like a service that Amazon offers where you can get groceries delivered to your house through like Whole Foods. If anybody gets groceries delivered and they enjoy it, please let me know because Anna and I find it insanely convenient. But yeah, when I was looking for LaCroix to get, because I always try to stock some, this showed up and it was like drastically cheaper. And I mean, I have semi-brand loyalty to LaCroix, but when you just totally take a chunk out of the price, it's a little uh, it's a little difficult to, uh, to say no to that. So those are the two beverages we're working with today. I don't really notice a... a large flavor difference in this. I'm drinking the lemon one at the moment. But I should say thank you to Jack. I feel like unbox therapy when I say that. Jack R is back on the mentor tier. Dropped off for a little while. He's back on the train. Very, very happy to have Jack back here. Nice rhyming. Okay. The first thing I need to discuss here is actually a correction. And this is totally my bad. And I'm Semi-grateful that some of you didn't, like, come after me in a menacing way, even though when I do something like this, I totally accept that you were would want to do something like this. But one of you just gave a gentle shout-out of, like, hey, just so you know, you only covered half of this story, and this is in relation to the world's best restaurants thing that I covered uh, last solo episode. So I it came on my radar as a, you know, the the food and wine side of it. And I did say in my coverage that, you know, it was a collaboration between food and wine and travel and leisure. But for those of you that listened to that episode, I was very confused because they put out this list of the world's best restaurants, but it didn't include Australia or Europe. Um, and so I was very confused to see that. And one of you, you know, put me on to like, well, it was a true collaboration. So food and wine published their side of, uh, I think, North America, Africa, 
in the middle in the Middle East. You know, they they divvied up the world basically, and so food and wine had their half, travel and leisure had their half. So linked below for you in the show notes is the other half of the world in the world's best restaurants list. Um, maybe I should go through a few of these, huh? So Asia and Australia they combine into one. So Attica is on that list. Burnt Ends in Singapore, couple restaurants in Tokyo, Mask in Mumbai, a few more restaurants in Mumbai, some street food in Bangkok, Seoul, Vea in Hong Kong, and then going into Europe, there's a couple places, Ganbara in San Sebastian, Hisa Franco in Slovenia, Noma, <laughs> that first sentence, Noma is still good, it's as good as everyone says it is, it's better. I might be going there in December. <gasps> Gasp. Saturn in Paris is on the list. St. John in London. Yeah. Okay, so it's... And then at the bottom of the article, it says, see the rest of the restaurants that made the list in North America, South America, Africa, and the Middle East at foodandwine.com. So it's great to see them give a little bit of a handoff there. But I, like, for your full transparency, I want to make sure that I'm correcting myself because I feel horrible when I do bad reporting in giving you these, you know, I, especially when I rant on it, that's even more embarrassing. You know what I mean? And I'm like, how could they not include Europe or Australia? And then all of a sudden it's like, well, dude, there was a second half. You just didn't read enough. So apologize, apologies for making that mistake, but this is hopefully enough to correct it. And if you you know wanted to see the second half, it's there for you. So the first piece that I wanted to discuss today, and th- this is kind of a theme that we're going to see throughout the entire episode today, which is people are dragging down fine dining, getting pissed off that certain things are still around that in their opinion should not be around. And then there's also this issue of people being upset that the high echelons of fine dining seem to be catered towards a specific group. And what I see is the underlying problem is that a lot of these food writers that are writing these pieces want food to be for everyone. So if you make food, you should have food that extends to all people. And I think that that is inherently a bad way to think about food. Because that is the quote, right? If you, the easiest way to fail is to try to please everyone. And I think that when people see that a certain style of food or presenting food or charging for food or a dining experience is for a certain group of people that, you know, has pissed them off in the past, it makes it an easy target for people to go after. So let's talk about this article. It's called The Great Regression. It's from a publication called Taste. What was the publication? It's going to load. Taste Cooking. The author is John Bonnet, B-O-N-N-E, with an accent. And I have a couple quotes that I want to share here because the the gist of it is, He's angry that the power lunch is having a bit of a resurgence. And the restaurant that he decides to lean into and kind of attack here is the Tack Room, which is, most of you know, Thomas Keller's latest project at New York's Hudson Yards. He does bring up the other restaurant that might come to mind when you think of this kind of dining experience, which is The Grill, which is owned by the, you know, Teresi Group and uh, Mario Carbone. But the first quote here is, 
Quote, it helps to know that Tack Room is a remake, the third variation on a theme. In 2015, during renovations at the French Laundry, Keller did Ad Lib, a pop-up at Napa's Silverado Resort and Spa. Here, America's most celebrated chef could revisit the sort of ritzy dining he began his career with. Steak, shrimp cocktail, and Caesar salad prepared tableside, sometimes by Keller himself. Clearly, Keller liked the idea. He repeated it at the Surf Club near Miami, the house restaurant for a hotel and a private club, a revival of what once was one of Miami's toniest spots. And then continuing, he says, quote, this sort of food, Keller explained in an interview with CNBC's Power Lunch, of course it was Power Lunch, was a tribute to his childhood, namely to the restaurants his mother Betty ran in Florida, which specialized in what Keller described as continental cuisine, end quote. And that, I think, was the kicker for me. And especially, it, there's a later story where we talk about culinary education, and I was doing some like background research on famous chefs. And Thomas Keller has this history of working in, like he says, continental cuisine, but then also old school French. So why is it bad that he wants to return to that kind of cooking, but it's not okay, but it is, but it, why is that not okay, but then it's super okay for someone like Rosio Sanchez to work at Noma, and then when she goes back to cooking Mexican food, it's like applauded and lauded. Do you know what I mean? Like, he is excited because he likes the luxurious, opulent dining room and the tableside service and all of that. But Rosio Sanchez likes a taco, and because it seems to be more accessible, and they get into it in this article. They talk about politics. They talk about um, how these places are, quote-unquote, 1% oasises, and he's talking about tack room in Hudson Yards. Hudson Yards, of course, being the 1% oasis. And he talks about um, how Ken Himmel and Stephen Ross are big fans and supporters of Keller. Um and the frustrating thing is it would be different if there was like there was only steakhouses in Hudson Yards. But then he goes on to talk about how David Chang has Kawi, which is, quote, perhaps his most boldly Korean spot in an empire of more than a dozen restaurants around the globe. And then there's, of course, little Marcado, uh, Marcado Little Spain from Jose Andres in the same space. So it's not that there's a lack of options. I think the the problem is people see places like the grill and tack room as a place for and you can correct me if I'm wrong here but they see it as a place for old white dudes to go out old rich white dudes that's also the the problem you know because there's enough little little italy places where old white dudes go out but they're not paying $85 for a main course and then the guy goes into talking about Bill Addison and New Romanticism, which we've covered on the show, as almost like a way to say, like, I understand what hap- what's happening in food. It doesn't really match towards what the article is actually talking about here. Um, what other quotes do I have highlighted here? It says, quote, in the end, what food and settings like this are truly about is making space for the powerful. And the most costed of power spaces was the Four Seasons. And then they talk about how the Four Seasons went through a giant, like, $40 million renovation, and then it ended up closing. It says, quote, even Seagram Building co-owner A.B. Rosen figured out that bit out, sort of. He was explicit that he wanted the the grill to be, quote-unquote, fun, rather than a power spot, even as he acknowledged that the actual fun people might not be able to fork over $250 for dinner. 
In which case, why are these places here? The only way to justify the ludicrousness of an $85 sole meunier is to conclude that these prices are not a bug, but a feature. The new conspicuous consumption marked by its attempt at inconspicuousness. So... He says, and that part of the great regression, at least, is welcome to go away because the past couple of years should have taught us that restaurants can reasonably be judged today not only on their food, but their values. And so I think that is the underlying thing that this person is trying to allude at, is that you value being a safe haven, quote unquote, for these people who do bad actions outside of the restaurant to congregate and flex on each other and do these sorts of things. And my question for you, the question that I want to pass on to you folks, is is that reasonable to assume that a restaurant should be responsible for being complicit in these things? You know what I mean? Like, because compared to anything else, right? If something shady happens in a gas station parking lot, should we then say that gas stations are the problem? It's a genuine question because I I don't like seeing places that put their reputation on the line and put great service out into this world getting torn down because of the clientele that they naturally end up attracting. I don't think that there's a specific form you can fill out on the Tack Rooms website to make a uh, reservation for a, a private table where some shady shit's going to go down. That doesn't exist. You can be mad at the type of people that go to these places because they are a certain way, but this should not reflect poorly on the restaurant. That's my point that I'm trying to get at. I'm not mad that this person is observing these things. People can draw lines wherever they want to draw lines, right? You can say that by supporting someone that ships things across the country, you're supporting fossil fuels. You could technically say that. I just get angry when you make it seem like the restaurant is supporting sexual harassment or because you're making it so easy for rich white dudes to congregate, you're inherently making it harder for people of color to succeed. That is not the case. I have, I as a half Indian dude see no issue booking a table at the tack room. And I don't think anybody would see an issue in booking a table at the tack room. You can spend your money on whatever you want to spend your money on. That's my point. So I'd be curious to hear what your folks' thoughts are on this because it, it, it does get me a little salty when I see this stuff kind of happening. And this response just came in, so I'm going to read it here. Organized Chaos on Instagram says, I also think it's about affordability for those who want to enjoy an amazing meal and experience it but don't have the money to pay $250 a person for a tasting. But, and I agree, I agree that that's what they're pointing out here, but why is Blanca in Brooklyn not getting attacked? I think it's the overall, the, the, the title of the article is The Great Regression. So the idea is some of this shady shit happened in the late 1900s. We've gotten to a point where restaurants aren't like that anymore, and now we're seeing they what they see as we're going back into that and i don't think that's the case i think what's happening is it's a case of it's like fashion right trends come and go so you see 
white tablecloths coming into prominence, and then people get sick of white tablecloth dining, and the kind of grungy underground restaurant like a Momofuku Co. takes that market share because people want something different, and then everybody has California-inspired cooking over wood fire uh, nine-ish course tasting menu that is kind of seafood-focused. That comes into prominence. And then you see a restaurant down the road that's a white tablecloth that's serving a porterhouse or a prime rib for two, and that's totally different than what you're used to seeing. So then, like, it ebbs and flows. Do you know what I mean? So, uh, it's exhausting, folks. It's very, very... That's what I think the, 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 the issue is here. So, we're going to leave it there. I really want to get into a conversation if anybody wants to kind of get into that. But continuing that... Man, I thought this was going to be over, but it's not. The... Title of this article is On California's Delicious and Dull Luxury Dining Circuit. And this is from the New York Times. So this is basically Preston Ganaway saying, I went to all the three Michelin star places in Northern California. And this is kind of, this was my experience. So he goes to French Laundry, he goes to a restaurant at Meadowood, and he goes to Single Thread. And I mean, he doesn't have... The, the the weird thing is, if you read through this article, it's nothing but praise towards these places, and then he says it's boring, which is such a strange thing to do, especially from a critic's perspective. So he says, quote, dinner, which is likely to be a two to three hour long tasting menu, starts at around $300 a person before drinks. You pay for a temporary escape into pleasure and the assurance that the, the assurance that even if you've done nothing all day but spit wine and sunburn, you'll be treated like a business tycoon who just closed a deal. At times, overwhelmed by the opulence, I felt like a character in a sci-fi movie who had sneaked onto a spaceship for the 1% now orbiting a burning planet, end quote. And so... It just seems like fine dining can't can't catch a break, right? It's like you're constructing your dining room to be too opulent and it's not accessible enough. But then when you go too cheap, it's like, well, they didn't really try hard enough and it wasn't really all that uh, inspiring or it wasn't creative enough. And then the article comes out that, well, we aren't really charging that much and so we can't pay our people enough. And then the article comes out that says fine dining is accepting too much free labor and they're surviving off of exploiting people and not paying them enough. So it's like, you can't have both, you know? And I just don't, I, I, I think that when you live a life, when you see these things happen over and over again, as far as like you sit at a tasting menu and you have the glass of champagne with your snacks followed by the tasting menu, you know what I mean? Like I have such an appreciation, I publish my experiences as videos on YouTube, right? So I don't get tired with seeing these things. And it just seems like they're having people write about these things that get that are tired of it. They're sick of it. They aren't inspired about it anymore. And then that shows in their writing, which then ultimately causes detrimental effects towards this stuff. It's like if you're not excited about it, why are you writing about it? talks about a lot of the dishes that end up getting served stunning production of the truffled mac and cheese at french laundry 
Quote, at the end of the meal, caught up in conversation with friends, I forgot about my espresso. A few minutes went by and maybe the coffee cooled and the toffee-colored crema dissipated. Without asking or making a show of it, a server brought out a hot one to replace it. The staff exuded confidence and warmth and their attentiveness was thorough, even after the check was paid, but never intrusive. But then at the same time, it's dull. You know, like, that's such an extra crazy level of service, but then you're going to say that it was, it was like, meh, who says that? <laughs> like, how, how is that promote, promotion to encourage restaurants to do more? Like, do you want them to just leave your coffee on the table? Because then you would ultimately say, I don't know, like, the, ti- the timing of the serving of the coffee was bad. Like, it just seems you can't, you can't have both. Let's see. It's Yash Veer on Instagram says, but you being a chef is different and the new bloggers and bucket listers writing on it is different. I, that's true. That's why I like to produce the content that I produce because I have the perspective of being both sides. I know what it's like to be back in the kitchen and working to feed people. And then I know what it's like to be in the guest seat. And I like that, that I do that. I, my Instagram's going to shut down in a little bit. Everybody should just be prepared for that. Let's see. What other quotes did I write down? Because I, I, I really, oh man, this is so frustrating to see. Quote, and what I knew about Napa was that it was someone else's exorbitant fantasy land, yawny and pampering. It could be perfect, but in the way that falling asleep during a massage is perfect. And I had no plans to make a special journey back. End quote. And they definitely go into this. For those of you that don't know, Michelin deems a three-star restaurant as, quote, worth a special journey, end quote, which is, of course, a nod back to French chauffeurs and, you know, people taking their cars out into the countryside because Michelin wanted to sell more tires. And he talks about, is a trip to these places actually worth a special journey or not? And he says, quote, but Trophy ingredients in wine country are often flown in from elsewhere. Sea urchin and wagyu beef from Japan, winter truffles from Australia. Ay, ay, ay. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, you can ask whatever question you want, anybody on Instagram right now. I think from the perspective of being mad that there isn't a lot of in- innovation happening in fine dining right now, I understand where that frustration comes from. The structure of the tasting menu, the style of service, the look and feel of a dining room. When you're on these kind of tours where you're going from a two-star to a three-star to another three-star, back to a two-star to a one-star to another three-star, it can be easy to find similarities. But that is very akin to... Like, I went to the Global Citizen Festival in New York this past week, and I could draw a lot of similarities to Lollapalooza, which I used to go to all the time as a kid when I was like a rowdy alternative indie music junkie, and I just loved going to concerts all the time. But what going to those shows was about for me, and even this past week, was about being there and understanding what it is that they were trying to do and appreciating what was happening in front of me as opposed to saying, oh, I've seen this before. Because at a certain point, I want this person to go to Vespertine and tell me how that's different or better 
or worse. Because that's the whole point of that concept, was to be different. And then all of the critics bashed it for being something that was too outlandish and too out there. So it's like, what do you want? Do you want more of the same or do you want different? Do you want to pay our... to, to Do you want to be charged an amount of money that's going to allow for people to get paid? Or do you want things to be cheaper? That's the ultimate question that I'm trying to like get to here. And it, it's it's very frustrating. Organized Chaos asks, at that point, do you blame the Michelin Guide or the restaurants? I think the restaurants are at the mercy of the Michelin Guide. I think that the Michelin Guide makes it very clear on what they look for in places like this. And so, if anything, the influx in diners is a result of the Michelin Guide. And then it works the other way, right? Like, if you get really popular as a place and you don't happen to have any stars, someone from the Michelin Guide is probably going to go because they're going to get recommendations of, oh, well, you're in London, you got to make sure to go visit this place. And so it's like a chicken and the egg thing at a certain level. But should Michelin change how they evaluate restaurants? I don't think so. I think if anything, Michelin is getting too much flack for being not strict enough. Like people are mad that certain restaurants are getting Michelin stars because they don't fit the mold of what people see as traditional fine dining. It's a fascinating time to be alive, folks. And I wanted to put all this stuff on your radar because... It can be very discouraging when you put all of this work into fine dining, like fine dining work, and then you look at what people are writing about your place of employment, and it's nothing but bad news. But then someone that actually understands the work that goes into it and the economics behind it goes and is completely blown away. It's like, who do I believe? This person who has a seat of power and writes for this publication and can spew whatever they want about it being kind of meh. It's very interesting. Lost our Instagram live. Nope, we're back. Cool. Okay, um, the next story I want to cover is a short one, but it is an update that Renee Redzepi put out, and it was a blog post called The Next Chapter of Noma. And... For those of you that don't know kind of the dynamics, I mean, if you're super early on in your career and you don't know the the dynamics of what happens when you take on a partner as a chef, the long story short of it is that, quote, over the past six years, my investment partner and friend, Mark Blazer, has paid a key, played a key, paid a key, played, let's go, Justin, a key role on our journey from one location on the docks of Christianshaven to a business with interests in multiple restaurants in Copenhagen and even in Tokyo, as well as the further development of the nonprofit MAD Foundation into an institution for our industry. I'm happy to share and grateful to Mark that he has now helped us engineer a way for me and my team to own our own business by selling Overture shares to us. This will be the first time that I will become the majority owner of the project that has become my life's work, and today involves my entire family and many who I now consider family. So that's just kind of, I don't think it's going to change anything on the surface level of what happens at Noma. I think Noma is still going to be exactly the same creatively and from like a service perspective, but it's cool to see, right? When you're when you realize that you think like all the articles get written about Rene Redzepi being the owner of Noma, and you from a you know, you're you're just a young cook perspective might think, oh my goodness, Rene Redzepi owns Noma. It's actually not the case. He 
oh, like he is liable to the other shareholders in the company. Um, and this is something that I just learned about recently. There's a great book if you're doing a startup called Slicing Slices of Pie, Slicing the Pie Handbook or something like that. It talks all about equity stake and it, it's a pretty quick read if anybody is interested in learning a little bit about how like how does it work when you give up a percentage of your company and how do you determine your valuation? Um, and so that's just a little update. Rene Redzepi actually owns the majority of Noma now, which is pretty exciting. I can only assume as someone... I. Every project I've ever done, I've either owned a percentage or like Voyager's table for full transparency. I am the co-founder and I own the second largest shares of the company behind my business partner, Jade, who's the CEO. And that means that I have voting in what the company does like strategically and from like during board meetings, I have my vote holds more weight than someone who doesn't have as high of an equity stake in the company. And so when they're thinking about moving to Tokyo, it's not just Renee can say, I'm going to open a restaurant in Tokyo. That that's that's It's happening. He has to present that idea to his other shareholders and they have to agree. But then I don't want this to all sound bad because I think that this these conversations can often seem like, oh, well, you're giving up creative control. You should never give up uh, any part of your business. But Renee now has the resources of a group of people that he can bounce ideas off of, and these people probably have connections that either increase the revenue of his restaurant or they save him money as a business owner. And so, like, there's more that goes into it rather than just saying, well, like, you should own 100% all the time and you should never uh, become victim to someone else's opinions on your business. No, there can be a lot of value in having partners in your business. But the thing is, you have to incentivize these people to have skin in the game. And by giving them a percentage ownership in your business, they feel invested. So that's just like a little background on that. I think it's cool. I'm like sending a massive congratulations to Renee because that can that probably feels amazing to, you know, actually feel like you own it now, like on paper, it's yours, even though, and that's a funny thing, right? Because all the articles made it seem like it was his place and a, a lot of these uh, publications when they write about Renee don't talk about this kind of stuff. So it's funny that it went in the reverse, right? On this, uh, to everyone's perception, it seemed like he was the owner, but it was not. And a lot of people would think in the reverse; they would want, they would want to be seen as the main owner, even though they're not. I hope that makes sense. Anyways, that's an update on that. Let's see. Restaurant Manifesto put out an article called Good Food Isn't Good Enough Anymore. And it's very interesting. It talks about, again, this is so crazy that people are talking about these kinds of things where uh, they talk about going out to a Mediterranean inspired spot and they say, quote, we were surrounded on all sides by privileged millennials slugging back overpriced rosé as the parade of delicious pastas arrived at our table. Vongole, ravioli, rabbit ragu. There was a sameness about the whole affair that didn't seem as special as it did 20 years ago when no one knew what the hell burrata was and everyone thought salumi was a misspelling. The food was good, but it felt like a meal I'd eaten a hundred times before. And they go on to talking about how 
uh, here. They say, quote, we expect more from restaurants, but it takes more to satisfy us. Cooking comfort food has become too comfortable. This puts chefs in a difficult predicament. Delighting guests that are more food literate can cause restaurants to prioritize innovation over flavor. As they push harder for new discoveries, their kitchens become more experimental, but they inevitably function more like sterile laboratories than as incubators for culinary creativity. And I think some most of us know that vision of the restaurant that's you know, super clean and white, lots of glass and metal, and it doesn't feel like a homey, cozy kitchen. But I don't think that's the point. Again, that's back to like, who is it for? Like, who is this restaurant for? If you go to a laser light show and expect a singer-songwriter on an acoustic guitar, you would call that person silly. But then it's okay to complain that a restaurant like Somni in LA isn't serving cozy comfort food. Do you know what I mean? Like not all restaurants can satisfy every palate and every desire that you have with food. They're there to do what they're excited about. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry, then it's not for you. That's okay. You can't then criticize it. And the funny thing about, let me, let me read that quote again. A friends and family dinner I attended at a new Mediterranean restaurant reinforced these ideas. The food was quite good and the kitchen hit all its marks, but it felt uninspired somehow. The obligatory hamachi crudo, stripped naked of its Asian roots, was anglicized and safe. First of all, Asian roots. What does that mean? Crudo is an Italian word. Everyone... And if you look at some of the menus, it is often a bastardized dish. Like you're not getting sashimi when you eat a hamachi crudo dish. Ay, ay, ay. Another quote here. Many articles have appeared lately about the new nostalgia. That's actually a tap back to the other article. That has seen the resurrection of relics of America's culinary past like the gaudy pomp and circumstance of chrome trolleys carrying prime rib and Flintstonian slabs of Chateaubriand buttered up and sizzling on Moviel copper pans. It would seem that once certain chefs run out of fertile new ideas or futuristic flavor combinations, nostalgic cooking becomes a convenient style to fall back on. But some diners, too, long for the days when chefs didn't exist to challenge our palates. They were simply here to feed us. There will always be a segment of the population that wishes we could make restaurants great again. For fuck's sake, who says that? Who says that? It's like, you'll get a dish that's new and challenges you as a diner, and it's too weird. Or you'll get a dish that makes a nod back to like, back to nostalgia in a good way. But then you can say the same thing negatively about food that is nostalgic and uncreative. Oh, folks, it's so frustrating to see all of this happening. And I'm sorry if you're new to this industry and you're having to go through this where you're like, but I thought nostalgia was good. Uh, but this person's telling me nostalgia is boring. And it's like, oh, I thought like opulence and elegance and taking care of people was good. Why are people saying it's bad now? Just be patient. It's all going to get shaken out. It's just like fashion. It comes and it goes.
Eater put out a piece called Stop Looking at Restaurant Menus Ahead of Time. And it talks about being surprised when you go into tasting menus. It talks about not, if you're going with a group of four, you shouldn't, so like if you're going to a restaurant like Frenchette in New York, which is like an a la carte restaurant, you should not make the reservation, send the menus to the three friends that you're going with for your four top, decide what you guys are going to order, look at the wine list, do some research on the wines to see if it's going to pair. You should just completely surrender and allow yourself to be surprised. And I think that's a interesting thing to say. I mean, it's what I do. I try not to, because that's the whole ethos of getting expectations. And when you see charred kale salad on the menu, that conjures an image in your head. And if what the restaurant serves is not like the image in your head, that's exactly what happens when you read a book and you get an image of what Hermione looks like and then you see the Harry Potter movie and it doesn't match and then you get pissed off. That's what's ultimately happening when you research restaurant menus before you see them. And it just talks about a lot of other funny things. Quote, this is true whether you like to dine with like-minded foodies or total neophytes. If your dining partners are also the types to research the menu, let them have the small victory of choosing. If you're sitting across from out-of-towners or in-laws or children or any non-omnivore you'd normally coerce into a group order, excitedly embrace their preferences. Your date is really into awful these days? You can get down with some beef heart skewers. Little Aiden only eats red things now? Borscht it is. Your cousin just went vegetarian? Sag paneer sounds great. It's such a funny place where it's like you can be too cool to go out to eat with. Isn't that funny? Like, if you're, let them have the small victory of choosing what they want to eat. I don't want to go out to eat with you if you're like that. If you see giving up control as ordering something that I think sounds good, I don't want to go out to eat with you. People go out to eat with me sometimes and they say, I really like going out to eat with you because you choose everything that we're going to want to eat because it's usually good. And I see value in that statement because I've been to a lot of restaurants and I know that if someone has, um, so like if someone has the choice between roasted carrots or something with a vegetable that I'm not all that familiar with. So like if it's, if it's a suncho if it's a roasted carrot dish side versus a sunchokes side, I'm probably going to pick the sunchokes. Because I've had carrots so many times that I feel like even if it is the most interesting, and I'm using hand gestures now, the most banging carrot dish is going to be here. But if it's an amazing sunchoke dish that really inspires me and gets me to think about this vegetable in a different way, it's going to be up here. And so if the sunchoke dish is average, it might fall to the level of like just below a really banging carrot dish. But if a carrot dish is bad, it's like down here. And I hope that everybody can see... uh, Everybody that's watching, I, I think you understand, if you, especially if you worked in restaurants for a long time, what I'm talking about. But that's how I look at it as a point of pride of like, oh, people trust what I like to order. And that's cool that people like to go out to eat with me. I don't think of it as like, guys, I'm going to take control of the ordering. And yeah, you can have your one appetizer. Like you can pick an appetizer. Go ahead. Let's see. Let's see what happens when you pick an appetizer. Fuck you. 
don't get so explicit on this show all the time. But man, it's really grinding my gears, folks. Quote, this concept may seem anathema to a well-informed eater, but in an industry increasingly driven by hype and digital engagement, it can feel gratifying to act out against our addictions to technology and over-planning. These days, ignorance requires intention and effort, but it's still bliss. End quote. And they cite this funny thing, and I've been guilty of this too, of sharing stuff on Twitter where it says uh, stuff like every trendy restaurant menu looks the same anyway. Maybe we should open this just to get a chuckle out of it. Uh, Oysters, the tiny stuff you're supposed to share, olives in a ramekin with a dozen house-made potato chips, jerky for grown-ups, tarted up pork belly, tangle o salted green shishito peppers, like, we've all seen this stuff before. Like, I don't think that that's his. But, like, things become classic for a reason. Like, I think most people in this day and age know that there are a multitude of ways to serve potatoes. But French fries are a pretty fucking good way to serve potatoes. And so they become the go-to for a lot of places. Because people crave French fries. I crave blister chichito peppers with, like, a really tangy aioli. Like, my mouth is literally watering thinking about that right now. Would I get inspired to see you do something fun with shishito peppers? Probably. But if I'm going out to eat and shishito peppers are in season, that's kind of how I want to eat them. It's just interesting. Let's see what else we got here. Um, 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 um. Let's just go to a new article. It's all linked down below for you folks if you want to check it out. Salejo put out a really awesome piece that I think is a cool kind of like state of what's happening right now. And some of you that are, you know, get really pissed off by super left-leaning liberals might roll your eyes at this. But the title of the article is Jackets Required for Gentlemen, But Who is a Gentleman? End quote. And this kind of piggybacks off of another story we covered previously in the show in another episode where we talked about when you go to serve a table that is a man and a woman, is it bad to serve the woman first because it's a gender, gender stereotype? And in addition to, you know, badass Nick Fitch being in this amazing photo, he was a coworker of mine at French Laundry. He's an awesome dude. She talks, I'm going to read you a quote here, quote, for trans and non-binary people, the fear of being interrogated about their gender can be omnipresent from the bathroom to the sidewalk to the doctor's office. At least Californians don't have to worry so much about the first one after the state legislature passed its landmark 2016 bathroom bill, which made gender neutral restrooms mandatory at all businesses, places of public accommodation and government agencies. But even in restaurants that have bathrooms that comply with the law, their dress codes might still lag, end quote. Let's see. I didn't quote up this article. Uh, Okay, here. Quote, when read between the lines, a dress code is one way for an establishment to signal who it wants to populate in its dining room. On one extreme, it can pass a signal of policy of racial, racial exclusion. A restaurant in Baltimore recently came under fire on social media for its dress code, which banned excessively baggy clothing and brimless headgear. In so many words, the policy effectively signaled that black Americans were not welcome. End quote. Let's see. 
<laughs> Talks about people rarely, rarely correcting people. Let's see. Yeah, I mean, it talks about how the French Laundry says guests are encouraged to follow the dress code of their gender identity. And when someone asks, like, if gentlemen are supposed to wear jackets, what is a lady supposed to wear? And they say something to the um, effect of, I'm trying to find it here, the equivalent attire for ladies. And again, I think this comes back to that first article of The Great Regression, talking about how certain products aren't for you. And I think that's okay. I think that certain products lend themselves to being more expensive because of the work that goes into them. And with, and I'm really trying hard not to shoot myself in the foot when I'm trying to explain this stuff off the cuff to you folks. When you make a certain amount of money, image matters. It's why people do makeup before they go out on stage. It's why people have to be careful about what they post on social media. It's why there's no doubt, like psychologically, when you wear things that make you feel good or make you f think that you're being perceived as being looked at in a certain way, it can change psychology. And so... You don't want to be at the French Laundry. It would make you feel better as a diner if you paid $355 to eat at per se. To, also, to, to be sitting across from someone at another table who's wearing a really nice dress and a suit. Like they put in an effort. That's basically what the restaurant is asking. Don't come off the, don't come off the resort in your flip-flops and shorts. Because... It makes people feel a certain way. And that's ultimately what's happening, right? Like, the restaurant is concerned with how it's going to, how its guests are feeling. The restaurant people probably show up in baggy jeans and a t-shirt. It's not like they're showing up to work in a suit. They show up in their street clothes and then change at work, Right? And so the restaurant is concerned with if you have a senator coming in to eat and they're going to be dressed in a suit, they're going to feel uncomfortable if they're sitting next to a table where the dude's wearing a Hawaiian shirt and the girl's just wearing a tank top. It's going to make them uncomfortable. And so to avoid that, they put in these dress codes. That's ultimately what's happening. And then the restaurant's getting yelled at because they're putting these systems in place to try to make their guests feel more comfortable. It's not systematically trying to weed out certain people for not coming, to not come. But and then at a certain level, it's like you have to understand that this restaurant is not for you. And I think that's okay. I need to find a better way to package this idea because there is something there where it's like... <sighs> It's getting attacked. It's getting attacked is what it feels like. Um, what else do I have? 
going on in my in my list of articles here. There's a piece I wanted to cover because I did a little bit of re- researching that ultimately didn't end up teaching me all that much. It was just kind of a an interesting piece from Eater where the title is, You Don't Need to Go to Culinary School to Be a Food Expert. And I think most people know this, but I wanted to do a little bit of research and just kind of like tell you some facts about some chefs that I admire that didn't necessarily follow this path because I think that it's way too focused on um, justifying people's paths as opposed to actually telling you that everybody's roadmap is different at most at most points in time, right? So, um, Anne Sophie Peak, three Michelin stars in France. She went to management school. She didn't go to culinary school. Rosio Sanchez went to Le Cordon, went to Le Cordon Bleu in Chicago. And that school, correct me if I'm wrong, ended up closing. So you could argue that it wasn't all that great of an institution. Thomas Keller didn't go to culinary school. He was an apprentice under Roland Hennen. Ferran Adria dropped out of school at 18 to become a dishwasher. Daniel Hoom started working in food at 14. Rene Redzepi went to culinary school, but it was when he was very young. And so it's like way too many people think that it's because you went to culinary school that it guarantees that you're going to be looked at in a certain way, when in reality, you're looking at like chapter one of these people's stories. And you're saying that that was the moment that made them who they are, when in reality, it's like you're overlooking the entire saga of what happened, right? It's like saying, uh, I don't even know what an analogy I'm trying to make. I just kind of wanted to share that where it's like, it is true, you don't need to go to culinary school to be a food expert, but I don't think that it should be like lauded as this thing that's like, because um, there's a lot of chefs who have Michelin stars and they didn't go to culinary school. But then you're saying that everybody at the top level of the of the culinary world has this, you know, institutionalized training behind them, and that's why they became successful. It's like, no, actually, actually not. And that's why I decided to not do my second two years of culinary school. Because I looked at all these people that I admired, and I was like, oh, shit, some of these people didn't go to school, period. Why am I trying to stay on for an extra two years? This is not prescriptive advice. This is just me sharing, you know, what I think is kind of interesting. Let's go into direct answer, shall we? Um, yes, I do do this before the non-industry stories. Um, Burkay Tough Guy on Instagram, semi-long question, says here, I wanted to start off by saying how much your videos are helping me in building my skill set and technique to one day eventually work in restaurants at the level that you have worked at. I was looking for advice on how to find the right job to provide me with mentorship currently left your old job after a few months that you're really regretting and you should have put in your two weeks at your current job to go back what should you be looking for in your work environment you're also really interested in nordic cuisine and you want to go to fronson and you want advice on how to get a two to three month externship into a place like that so let's start with the first question something that i thought very early on was that strategically 
it's better to go to a place that is young and hungry rather than a place that is established and already has gates up. So to give you that example, I really wanted to learn under, this was when I was in culinary school, I really wanted to learn under Grand Ackets. And when I moved to Chicago, I had an interview set up with Alinea and I had an interview set up with Grace. And what went through my head was, should I go to Grace and take the risk of this is going to be a really small team and it's going to be a little bit scrappy? Or should I go to Alinea where I will have direct, what I thought was, you know, direct access to Grand Ackets? And I don't think that's the best route to go all the time. Because when you go to a place like an Alinea or a French Laundry or a 11 Madison Park, the people who are getting mentored by the person that you're trying to get mentored by, a la Daniel Hume or, you know, Massimo Butura or whoever, the people who are getting mentored by that person are the people directly under them. They're the people that are working with these people the closely, the closest. And so that's probably his sous chef team, his restaurant manager, front of house person, all the Psalms there. They're probably working closest with Massimo in this example. If you start off working at Austria Francescana, it's probably going to take you some time to get to that level. But if you were to think about, well, if I want a mentor who is skilled and understands fine dining and is probably an expert in a certain style of cooking, and they just left Austria Francescana and they're going to open their own place in San Sebastian, it might be smarter for you to work for them because you're going to be closer to the sun. Does that make sense? Like whatever you can do to get closer to the sun in that scenario is going to benefit you the most. So that was kind of my strategy behind taking Grace instead of Alinea. I thought Curtis Duffy worked and learned under Grand Ackett. So if I can get into the team at Grace, which is going to be a smaller team than Alinea, I will then by nature be closer to Curtis Duffy and he will mentor me. Curtis Duffy was not a great mentor. And so I learned like that was a risk I took. Because when people leave, you don't know how they're going to be as mentors all the time until it's kind of fleshed out. But then it's that paradox, especially as we're talking about all these restaurant reservation things, right? Like if a restaurant doesn't have any write-ups about it, you're taking the risk by going to eat there when, you know, the people that you trust to tell stories about them haven't told their stories yet. So you're taking a risk counterintuitively, once they've done the write-up, it's probably going to be a little bit harder to go in and get a table, right? Because now everybody knows. So you got to sometimes take that risk. But I I wouldn't advise you to go to a place that seems well-established because it's going to take you more time or it's going to require a significant amount of standing out to get that mentorship fast. As far as the externship at Fronson for two to three months, I, I would hope that you would have sent any like even a riff on my stagiaire email template because saying that you can work for free somewhere for two to three months is a great card to hand to a restaurant because that's a lot of value, right? Knowing that from a business perspective that you're getting three months of free work from someone is really awesome. And so if you have that card and you're willing to hand it over, 
I don't see why they wouldn't take you. I know they take a ton of stages, but again, you that's what you're offering. You're offering your time. You don't have anything that can say what the value of that time is. Because if you are at a point where you require significant teaching, that's more investment that they have to pour into you. And so if it would give you benefit, and and like this is me talking super long game for you, right? If Fronson is crazy high on your list, I'm asking you to kill two birds with one stone where you can find someone who has experience at Fronson and has just either become a sous chef or just opened their own restaurant anywhere in the world. You can go work for them. You get your mentorship. And then also once you've put in a year of working for this person, you say, hey, you know, I've actually always wanted to go spend three months at Fronson and I know that you worked there is there any way that I could go spend three months there and then come back to the restaurant because I'm going to come back a more inspired chef. I have a hard time believing that in the next 12 months, you know, after you've been there for a year, that there wouldn't be a way for you to be able to work that out. So that's my advice. I hope that that, like, it's not like I know that Franzen does not take stagiaires. Like, it would be hard for me to think that you could get something like that to happen at a place that due to labor laws or due to getting burned in the past, they have a strict no stagiaire policy because there's a lot of restaurants that are like that. But I know for a fact that Fronson is accepting of these things. Everybody on uh, Instagram, I'm going to get kicked off because I've been on for too long. And so save your questions. I'm going to log back on and you can ask me your questions there and I will do a little mini other Q&A after this because I'm going to lose everything that just happened, so I'm sorry. Okay, one more direct answer. I'm going to make this one a little bit fast. Alexia Boswell on Twitter asks, can you talk about how to keep yourself inspired as an upcoming chef? I guess the deeper question I want to ask here is like, what is not inspiring about the work that you're doing? Is it too repetitive? Are you not excited about the food? Like, to me, like, are you, do you not enjoy hanging out with the people that you're hanging out with? Because none of, most of us are not doing this for the money. So there's some other element of the industry that is enticing to you. And so I want to know how can I get more of that thing that sparked the fire in the first place, right? So if it's creativity, how can we either give you an opportunity to create more or get you in a restaurant where you're seeing more creativity, where you're like, well, I've never seen that before. I didn't know you could do that. Because it doesn't always come from cookbooks, you know, because then, then I feel like you're often operating in a silo, and I feel like none of us got into this because we like working alone. So that would be my advice, is ask yourself, what is it that does inspire you, and how can you get more of that into your life? And for, I mean, a lot of people that I've worked with in the past, it's not the creativity, they get so much value out of being like the camaraderie that they have with their coworkers that it ends up being counterintuitive for them to be in a more ambitious creative place because most of the people at that level are like extremely um I'm logging back in online most of the people that work there are probably incredibly cold and harsh and they're robotic and all they want to do is kind of be there for the cause. And so I don't want to give you the advice of, oh, well, you need to get more creativity in your life because that might not be the answer for you. Maybe it's, um, 
I was very inspired by the fact that going from the U.S. to Europe, I got the chance to talk to the guests more. That inspired me a lot, being able to talk to the people that were eating my food. So going out into the dining room. And so maybe it's a case of shifting to a restaurant that has a policy of letting the chefs go out and present the food. I don't know. That's kind of where my head goes. I have a couple of things that I want to chat through for our non-industry story today. Where did I have this? There it is. It's my history here. I'm just scrolling through like videos I've watched um, and like thinking back to things that I've done over the past couple weeks or so. I bought my first really nice pair of denim jeans. They're like black jeans from a brand called Three Times One. And it's like a little boutique that they um, have in Soho in Manhattan. It's like a brand that's like an offshoot of Nike. Like they partner with Nike for a lot of things. It might be a Nike brand itself. But it's like the most I've ever spent on a pair of pants before. And I really, really like them. So shout out to those jeans. The iPhone 11 and 11 Pro came out and I'm not going to upgrade. Kind of wanted to chat through that a little bit. I'm waiting until then. Like, I want to stop craving the upgrades. Same with cameras. I want to be okay with creating with what I have. And, and I think, like, especially when it's an incremental increase, I'm not all that interested. Like, I got the new MX Master, MX Master 3 mouse because I sincerely can notice the difference. I think that if I got the iPhone 11, I wouldn't notice that much of a difference. What else happened that I want to chat through? Does anybody have questions that they uh, left in the previous live stream and they want me to answer? Because I will answer those in a hot second once I make sure that I've uh, gone through all of this stuff. I guess a non-industry story is, uh, oh, an industry story is Chef Steps is back. I think most of you are probably excited about that. That was really, really cool to see them doing more stuffs, and I have a friend who is working there, so there might be some future collaborations with them coming up, so be stay tuned for that. Let's see. No, I don't really have any other, like, crazy, cool, non-industry stories that have happened. I saw Ad Astra, which was fine. I thought it was beautiful. I thought the story was kind of underwhelming. Got great reviews. Again, I thought the cinematography was great. I didn't really, I wasn't really that captivated by the story. Because you obviously compare it to Interstellar, right? Which is such a crazily good movie. No, I think that's it. I think that's all I want to talk about today on the podcast. Let's go through some questions. Who has questions for me? What's the title of my YouTube video showcasing my bookshelf? I don't have one. I had a series that was exclusively for Patreon that I would break down a cookbook, share some of my favorite quotes, I couldn't share recipes, unfortunately, because that would be like copyright issues. Um, But I do have a pretty good list on Kit where I talk about my favorite cookbooks. So you should check that out. Sammy Cooks, one of the knife winners being announced. I am finally shipping out gearboxes this week. Not this week, next week. Uh, The deadline for getting your addresses in on Patreon is this week for everyone. And I'm going to kind of batch that. So I need to announce the knife giveaway winners and then at the same time ship those out to uh, ship out the gearboxes. If I had to describe my cooking style, what would it be? Culinary, cuisine-wise, that is. This is like this chapter in my career where I'm figuring that out. 
because I have all this modern American and French training, but then I also have like my dad's from India and I see that as a distinct advantage. Whereas prior to this, I always saw it as something that I had to like, not apologize for, but like it was off limits. So like we barely used, aside from like a few presentations, we didn't use like cilantro or coconut or chickpeas at any of the restaurants that I worked at, especially in Norway. And so I just feel like I have all this technique foundation and I have this new palette of ingredients that I'm really excited about cooking with. And thank goodness people are excited about eating it, which is really, really amazing. And so I'm kind of leaning into that a little bit. And so it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I've said it in the past where I'm like, I'm leaning into fusion. Does that make sense? Let's see. Sid.kr. I'm 16 years old. I want to become a chef, but sometimes I lose interest or my passion in cooking. You haven't found the right restaurant yet. You haven't found the right team yet. You haven't found the right mentor yet. You haven't found a dish that gets you excited enough about food to be like, this is what I want to do. And I guess the deeper question is, why do you need to become a chef? Like, I would hope that the interviews that I do and the people that I talk to on this podcast show that you can be involved in food, like you can be tangentially touching food, but you don't have to be a chef. So you can be a food photographer where you go in and shoot chef's cookbooks. Like, the deeper question is, why do you want to be a chef? And I find that most people, especially when you're young, it's like you watch Chef's Table and you want to be respected for having a point of view on food. You can do that without being in a kitchen every single day or managing a team of chefs. And I think that that's what often goes missed, especially when you're young and you're seeing all these people that are becoming famous and getting stars and they're on stage for the award shows, is it's not required anymore to be a chef, to be respected in the food world. Right. Like I go to Bona, I, I went to Feast Portland last year, and the people that were on the panels or getting discussed or had more Instagram followers weren't chefs. They were people who were involved in food in other ways. So that would be my advice. I want to go to Texas so bad. I really want to go to Austin and Houston. Shout out to uh, Emmanuel doing great tacos in Houston. TPC at Smith in Chicago, I'd love to do a meal there. I know a lot of you are inspired by his food, so that's really awesome. Will I open a restaurant of my own soon? I will open something, I would say, in the next three to five years is very realistic. It's not going to be a restaurant. It's going to be a place where I can create. It's not going to be a place, it's not going to be a restaurant in the traditional sense. Like, you're not going to be able to look and see what I'm serving for happy hour on Wednesday night. Ah, that's a whole nother um, topic in and of itself. Why do I like being a chef then? That's a good question. I like being a chef because it's the one thing where I, like before making content, it was the first time that I ever experienced flow. And I remember texting Anna about it. It was because it was when I was like 20 years old and I was catering for this party in Connecticut. And it was after I had done all my restaurant experience, so I felt like I had a substantial level of skill at that point in time. And I didn't touch my phone for like 10 hours. And I was like, whoa. 
I just experienced flow. And I had like kind of experienced it before in other things, but like this was something that I was getting paid to do. And so I talk about it a lot in the Line Cook's Thoughts podcast where like I really just love being a line cook. I'm a natural procrastinator and food is the one thing that's like it's better when it's a la minute. Like it's better when you finish things in the last moment and a lot of things aren't like that. And so I get a lot of rush out of like last minute things. There's like all these like weird psycho, psycho, like if I'm psychoanalyzing myself, I find these things that I like, it makes sense that I like being a chef. I don't have one line where I'm like, I really like cooking for people because I do, but that's not like my why. My why is like a little bit more personal than that because I find that if I can personally be excited to show up and do what I do, um, it makes it less likely that I'm going to burn out on doing these things. And I would argue, like, a, a lot of people are probably um, concerned that I don't cook as much as they do. But I get so much more value and excitement out of making content like this for you folks that, yes, maybe it's not cooking. But because I know and, like, I can tell by the DMs you folks send me that I'm helping in some sort of way, that makes me then more excited to get back into the kitchen because I'm also taking some time away from the kitchen. Right. So then when I get back into it, it, it makes it more exciting. Do, 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 do. Standards in restaurants are being lowered by the whole team and everybody just kind of shrugs their shoulders. What should we do? It's a bit discouraging. Seems like that needs to come from the top. Like if the whole team is, is doing that kind of stuff, it seems like there's a relatively lax feeling across the board and so it needs to come from the top any good pointers to keep things in mind when shooting food lighting is key light 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 shoot next to open windows that's the best kind of food photography you'd be surprised how many cookbooks get shot and created by a single person with a with a camera a lens with a shallow depth of field and a window in a restaurant you don't need a crazy fancy lighting setup. See, Drew, when you ask about flow, you should just look up flow state, how to get into a flow state. Thoughts on farm-to-table or market-based restaurants that don't stick to that code based on the Union Square Farmer's Market, but it isn't actually. That is the most frustrating thing. When a restaurant advertises that it's clean and local and sources from farms and then you see that things are coming in from Cisco, right? I mean, that's, again, it comes from the top, right? They've decided that they're going to be inauthentic in their marketing. Or maybe they're seeing it as like, well, we do use things from farms. But they're putting their foot forward like everything we use is from farms. And that can be very frustrating. I know how that feels. Um, it's why I don't claim to be fully local or organic or because it's like, I do use Italian things. I like pairing my dinners with wines from France and Spain and Portugal and Chile. And so I feel like we as chefs find a lot of solace, especially when we're young in being able to count on these things as being absolute when in reality, People would find more confidence in you if you were just to be a little bit more transparent on like, 
we use local when we can. Or we shop from local farms when it makes sense. Because that's also a frustrating thing. If you would, if the lemons from wherever you're buying lemons from aren't as good as lemons you could get from somewhere else, you have to make a choice then. And are you going to choose to use the lemons that taste worse, but they come from closer to you? That's a great question. That is a great question. My favorite cuisine to cook is things that I've never cooked before. Sorry, Anthony. I'm not going to answer that question because I put out enough, like, uh, biggest... Okay, I'll answer it. Just pay, just pay attention. Awareness. It's a John George restaurant that claims to be farm to table. Yeah, that's true. Technically, most food does come from a farm. It just depends on where that farm is. What's the difference between a modern or a French restaurant? That's my question for you. Am I traveling to Europe this year? Yes, I will be in Norway in December. Very excited. Okay, that's enough for the Q&A. I just did an Ask JK that just went live an hour ago, so I hope everybody that got to watch that. Thank you so much for watching the Emulsion Podcast. Please roll the outro. We did it. You're in outro land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave The Emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com slash is the place to do that. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram that is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on justincona.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now's normally where I'd say my name is Justin Kana and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to. So I'm just going to get out of the, out of the way here. Excuse